Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. open to two passages, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, then we're going to go to the book of Haggai chapter 1, that's one of those tiny little books, right, just, just before we end the Old Testament, it's tucked in those little collection right there towards the end. Uh, if you're just joining us, let me kind of catch you up to where we're at. This is the fourth and the final week in part one of a series that we've entitled A Great Work. And, uh, and I know we're headed towards Christmas. This is not the typical holiday series. Uh, but boy, as a teaching team, as we were talking and praying, we just recognized the Lord's doing something in our church. And we, we felt like we need to stay on a theme. And we need to begin to talk about uh, more intensely what the Lord uh, is moving in our, our church about. And so the heart of this series is about the local church that what we're doing here at Lakeshore and really all the local churches, but, but more so with what the Lord's speaking to us, is not just a good thing. It's not just a religious thing. It's not just a noble thing. According to the Bible, it's a great thing. In fact, when we look at the words of Jesus, it's actually the greatest work that's happening on earth right now because it is what's moving us, engaging us in this great co-mission or the great mission of Jesus, and that is to help bring people into eternity, to get them saved, to begin to teach them and to mature and grow so they can demonstrate that Jesus is alive, that he does what he promises he would do, and he would cause other people to say, hey, we'd like to participate in that, and they can meet Jesus, and we could all be moving in the kingdom of God until we go spend uh, eternity in heaven. And, and we noticed a parallel in the Old Testament between what the Lord's asking us to do and what he asked a couple of men in the Bible, what they wrote about, particularly the book of Ezra. But then we've been focusing more so in the book of Nehemiah and kind of leaning backwards and, and grabbing some things in Ezra. Uh, if you're kind of new to the study, both of these, these uh, stories go together, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they cover about 110 years. And all of them are focused on the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Ezra focuses more on the temple, and Nehemiah focuses more on the outer perimeters or securing the wall and causing the city to be a safe place of refuge. And in the same way that we sense the Lord doing something here and wanting us as a congregation to recognize it and to begin to come back and to strengthen our church, to build it up to another level, we felt like the Lord uh, was calling us to do that and we should go back and look at Nehemiah. So week number one, Pastor Brandon preached a great message called Get a Burden. And it was talking about how we, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our heart and to develop our our values and develop our priorities and develop within us a passion to engage the work that he has for each of us as as, as, as members of the church. If you're born again, then you're gifted, you're called, you're equipped, you're empowered to be a part of the kingdom of God, not just to come and attend, but to actually engage and to say, I'm bringing what I, what I bring to make the church stronger, to make the church more effective in reaching people. The next week, uh, Pastor Brandon preached again, and he was entitled, Make a Move. 
And he talked about as the Holy Spirit begins to stir our heart, begins to help us to rethink and reprioritize some things, we have to move from passion to action. Pastor James talks about this and says if we, if we know something's true and we think about how true it is and we just hold it in our heart, that really doesn't do anything because faith without works or a corresponding action is a dormant issue. And so we talked about the fact that we need to engage. We need to take whatever that next step is. And then last week, I was privileged to come and jump into the, the study, and we talked about the importance of standing your ground. We looked through the New Testament, and we saw that the Bible's really clear. Anytime you make a decision to take a step deeper into your faith, a step deeper into engaging the kingdom, the Bible says we have an enemy who's going to immediately come and oppose that. He'll, he'll be super creative. You, won't, you might not even recognize it's him. You might think it's just circumstances, and man, that's the craziest thing that happened. You'll never believe the moment I decided to, I probably will believe that. Because the enemy gets really creative, but he'll do everything he can to stop you, to thwart you, to talk you out of engaging what God's called you to do to advance the kingdom and to build his house. And then today we're gonna, uh, in this final study of this first part, we're gonna talk about, we're gonna move to the book of Haggai, and I'll, and I'll tell you in just a little bit how it connects. But we're gonna talk about how experiencing the blessing that God has for us is actually the result of a life that's set on advancing God's kingdom and building his house. In fact, the title of today's study is Experience the Blessing. And, and we're gonna do it this way. We're gonna we're we're try to accomplish three goals, and each of these goals represents a section of the study. So let me kind of tell you where we're headed, and then as you're listening or if you're taking notes, you'll know where we're at in the study and kind of you know, what, what, what you need to focus on. The first thing we're gonna do, we're gonna go back from Scripture, and we're going to refine what does it mean when the Bible talks about blessing or a blessed life. Because we have a different concept in, in Western culture, and it doesn't really line up to Scripture, and it'll give us a skewed understanding. The second thing we're going to do, we're going to introduce a prophetic word that Haggai gave back in the Old Testament that is super relevant uh, for the New Testament church today. And finally, uh, when, when we get those two things accomplished, we'll get to number three, and we're going to give three practical truths that will speak to us today about how we should be engaging so that we could experience the blessing of life. By the way, when we get to the three practical truths, the bulk of the foundation will be set, and so that will go relatively quick, and you'll be able to see how this fits and how it applies, and it, should, it shouldn't take a lot, of, a lot of challenge or a lot of time there. So here we go for part number one. Let's redefine the blessed life, and there's two different clarifications we have to bring so we can look from Scripture. First of all, we have to define the word blessed or the word blessing. Because in the Western culture here, when we say blessing, most of the time, I'd like to say all the time, but I know there's some people that ha have understood the difference, but most of the time, we immediately think of something that has to do with material wealth, or we, have to th we, we, have, we think of something that has to do with a level of comfort in our life. So no problems, everything's going great, I'm blessed, it's kind of a you know, real wonderful place to be in life, and that's kind of what we think of. However, that's not what the New Testament really refers to. In fact, that's not what either the Old Testament or the New Testament really refers to when it talks about blessed. If you go back and you define the actual word from the Old Testament all the way through the New, the word blessed simply means happy, means to be full of joy. 
It means to be satisfied, to live a rich and a fulfilling life. And when you recognize that, it awakens our understanding to realize that whenever the Bible talks about blessing, it's primarily talking about an internal condition, not an external condition. Now, now let me just say real quick so we don't go too far to another extreme. Uh, It's not excluding external circumstances. It's not saying that blessing doesn't at some point include material things and and the experience experience of peace in your life and and really, you know, allowing you to be victorious over your problems. It's not excluding that. But as you study the Bible, you find out it's not really the primary emphasis. That's kind of part of what God will do. But the primary emphasis is the Lord will will keep you in a state of contentment, a state of joy, a state of confidence, a state of happiness, a state of peace, no matter what's happening in your external circumstance. Let me give you an example, although there are many. But this is a quick example. Listen to Psalm chapter one, the first two verses. It says, blessed is the man. Now listen to the description of this blessed man. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I want you to know there's no mention of stuff. There's no mention of external, like, it, but, he's, but are things going well? Is he comfortable? Is he in a big challenge? Right? No mention of that. All the mention is what's happening internally and where his focus is and the result of of his focus being in the right place is that he's a blessed man. He's happy. He's at peace. He's walking in confidence. He's walking in faith. He's content for the moment that God's at work here. In fact, notice that last part in verse two. It said his delight is in the law of the Lord And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, let me make a distinction for some of you. It's not a reference to the Mosaic law that we see in Exodus, uh, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's not the Mosaic law where back then it kind of feels like that you had to earn your salvation. So if you were living right, then you qualified. If you weren't living right, then automatically thrown to the other side of the equation. But Galatians chapter three says that Christ removed all that pressure off of us. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. Romans chapter eight says we don't have any condemnation because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made us free from the law of sin and death, from being under that pressure of having to earn our salvation. So when it says that he meditates or delights in the law and meditates on that law day and night, it's not referring to the Mosaic law. It's referring to the laws of God, the kingdom laws, and and how God has designed life to flow. So we, we can put some examples in there, the law of love, the law of faith. In fact, here's one we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the study, the law of sowing and reaping. This is the way that life actually works. We have laws in our life. We have some that are traffic laws and some that are civil ordinances, but then there's the law of gravity. Don't jump off the roof because you won't need to get a ticket because you're going to be headed to the hospital. Because the law of gravity works every time. We understand there are laws that govern. There are laws in the kingdom. And the Bible says the blessed man doesn't get caught up in all of this sideways, contradictory conversation. But his delight is thinking about, meditating on, staying focused in the laws of the kingdom and how God said life works. And in that law, he delights. 
This is where he's planted his life. And so this morning, as we start talking about the blessed life, I I don't want you to hear the definition from a materialistic culture. I I don't want you to hear, you know, it's always talking about substance and stuff, although I, I want you to know it doesn't exclude that. I want you to recognize that the blessed life is really talking about internally, where's your focus and, and where are you in terms of prioritizing and allowing God and his word to lead your life? Now, once you kind of understand that renewed definition, it's easier to see the second clarification. And the second clarification is whenever the Bible does talk about material wealth, because sometimes it does. Did you know a third of Jesus's messages were talking about either time, talent, or treasure? And all three of those are linked together because it takes time and it takes talent to get treasure. And once you get treasure, then then you have a decision, where are you going to continue to put your time and your talent? And so Jesus preached about it a third of the time. And whenever the Bible talks about time, talent, or treasure, anything that's externally measurable, I want you to begin to recognize the emphasis is always talking about the heart of the individual, not the external measurement. He's not really talking about money as much as he's talking about the heart, but once he establishes the principle of the heart, then he'll come back and he'll say, but here's where God will, will, will step in and will help you with money. The principle's the heart, but once you understand the heart, here's where God will come back and help multiply your time and help make sure that it's more effective. Here's where God will take your talent and will use it, even though you don't think it's of any value to the kingdom. Once you get your heart right and you say, well, Lord, you gave it to me, I'm gonna come submit it, God will amaze you and you'll get to see just how you can use those things for the kingdom. In fact, we're gonna quickly go through this. The first passage I asked you to look at was Matthew chapter six. This is Jesus talking in one of those messages about time, talent, and treasure. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter six, verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Okay, so that's what not to do then what is Jesus saying we should do? He said, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroyed and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, There's other translations that say it something like this more succinctly and maybe uh, quicker for us to make a connection. It says, don't treasure things that are on the earth, but treasure things that are eternal. Treasure things that are of the kingdom." Treasure things that are, of, that are of heaven. And that's important that we carry it with us because verse 21 says, for, or the reason Jesus is saying that is because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, Pastor Brandon just said it in the devotional, uh, the financial, or I'm sorry, the giving devotional here, but I want you to catch that. It says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, not the reverse. And we think it's the reverse, Right? Whatever you treasure in your heart, that's where your external treasure will be. That's where your external, no, no, no. He says the heart's a follower, the heart's not a leader. The heart's a gathering place. And, and wherever, you're, wherever you put your external values, then your heart will begin, oh, I guess that's what we really love, and your heart will begin to lean. And Jesus gives us this insight. He says where your treasure is, 
That's where your heart's going to be, not wherever your heart is. That's what you treasure. No, no, the actual is, is the reverse. And that's really, really important because when we look at it as a whole in this first part of Matthew 6, he's not saying, you know, you can't have bank accounts and you can't have savings accounts and you can't have investments and you can't do well financially. Again, it's not excluding stuff. It's just not focused on it. He's saying, no, you have to keep your values and priorities right. You have to be listening to what the Lord says because your heart and your treasure, aka time, talent, and the, the whatever the wealth is, all of those things are connected together forever. And he says, where you spend your time, talent, and where you spend your finances, that tells what you treasure the most. So we like to say as Christians, oh, I love God with all of my heart. And, and let me just say this, okay, and I'm, and I'm applying it to myself too. Really? Then open your calendar, open your checkbook, and let's find out if that's true. And we don't make that connection, but this is how the Bible says it really works. So if you truly love your spouse and you truly love your family, then when you open your calendar and you open your checkbook, you should see deep investments. I'm not saying that it, it, you know, it's the, the equation's perfectly balanced because sometimes it takes a lot of work to be able to get to the place where you can have the time and you can have the, the, the finances to invest where you really want to invest it. What I'm saying is your deep and your most precious investments will reflect that. If you love your spouse and you love your family, that's where you're gonna spend your time. But listen to me, if you truly love the Lord Jesus, then the Bible says your time, your talent, your treasure is going to be invested into his kingdom. And listen to me, again, I want to keep clarifying. This is not about God saying that stuff is not important. It's not saying the way you manage your time is not important. You have to give everything to the Lord all the time. You can't do anything with all of your heart outside. No, no, no. It's not saying God doesn't want us to have stuff. Listen, heaven's going to prove that to us. God is extremely generous. I mean, like embarrassingly generous, not just when we get there, but right here too. So God doesn't mind us having stuff. He doesn't mind us applying the energy and the giftedness to get the stuff. But God is very much against stuff having you. Very much against your priorities, as any good parent would be. Very much against those kinds of destructions. So much so that he keeps on talking about it in Matthew 6 here. Listen to verse 22. He says... The lamp of the body is the eye. Now, that's a metaphor for your perspective, the way you see things, okay? The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, or if you have a right perspective, you're seeing things clearly from God's perspective, he said, then your whole body will be full of light. In other words, then the way that you think and the way you process and the way you make decisions will, will, will be really good because you have a really good perspective. You have a kingdom perspective. This is going to really help you out. But look at verse 23. He said, but if your eye is bad or if you have a wrong perspective, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Doesn't mean you're an evil person, you're a wicked person, you won't be part of the church, and you, know, you won't say, no, Jesus is my Lord, I'm going to heaven one day. It means that you're gonna have a shadowy, darkened approach to how you make all of your decisions. Because you, you didn't start with a right perspective. And so he goes on and then he concludes it this way. He says, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness... 
how great is that darkness? And the Bible doesn't use grammar, really. That, that's just not how the, you know, the Greek language, the Hebrew language worked. But I want you to notice that the translators in English, in almost every translation, at the end of that statement, when it says, how great is that darkness, put an exclamation point. That's not a rhetorical question. That's an emphatic statement. And here's what it's saying. If, if you start off with a wrong perspective but you think it's a right perspective, you're gonna keep stumbling around, never finding the kingdom path, and never really understanding just how wrong you are, because you think you're right. In fact, you might be moving, uh, using external measurements to validate your rightness. But the Bible comes back and says, no, if you didn't start off with the right perspective, then every decision you're making, even though right now you're stacking up these externals and you say, no, look, it's paying off. I'm telling you, he says, how wrong are you really? See, it's one thing to be wrong and you know you're wrong. And, and, and you say, yeah, I know I got to change and I know, but it's a discipline issue or, or it's a focus issue or, or, or some other issue, right? But you know you're wrong. It's a whole nother thing to be wrong, but you're convinced you're right. And see, the exclamation, the emphatic statement is here, you're in real trouble. You really need to stop. And you really need to pay attention because you're on the wrong path, but you're going faster and faster because you think you're on the right path. Let's keep going, Matthew 24. He wraps it up with the moral of this part of his message. He says, no one can serve two masters. Everybody say no one. You know, that includes you, right? Nobody's excluded from that. This is everyone. Nobody can serve two masters. Literally can't be done. Cannot. He goes on, he says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. The word despise has this wide range of meaning everywhere from marginalizing, like, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not really a set, you know, a set thing. It's just, it's kind of a suggestion. It's kind of something, if I can, when I can all the way to uh, an absolute decision to treat that lightly, to scoff at it, to say that that's just absolutely dumb. I'm not doing that. But I want you to notice, he says, if you try to live between two of these premises, he said, you need to understand it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Either right away, you'll say, I get so angry every time they talk about money, every time they talk about you know time, talent, treasure. It just makes me so mad. I'm a busy person. And either you'll love the one, and you'll absolutely hate, you'll despise, you'll get angry, you'll walk out frustrated because we're emphasizing another, or you'll try to ride the fence, but inevitably you'll choose one, you'll, you'll keep leaning every time that push comes to shove, every time you're in a pinch, guess which one is going to be pushed to the side? You're gonna lean to one, and you're gonna treat the other one very lightly. But the bottom line is, it's not possible to do both. You have to choose. And it comes back to you have to make sure your perspective is seeing the right way. And then you have to make a wise choice. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how many external things are telling you you're doing good, you're doing good, you're doing good. If the word of God says you're on the wrong path, you're on the wrong path. Remember those scriptures that we like to push, push because they're just so, you know, little, little truths in our pocket all the time. There's a way that seems like it's right. I mean, that's always just jumped out at me. This is not a haphazard decision. This is someone who probably did their homework, who, who may have taught time to, had time to think about it and make these process very thoroughly thought through choices. And yet there's a way that seems like it's right to a person 
But the end of it is just going to lead them to destruction. And that's exactly what Matthew 6 is talking about here. And Jesus wraps it up this way. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. And the word mammon there, he finally gets down to it. The word mammon there identifies an evil spirit that was prevalent in the Old Testament, still prevalent today, although not talked as much about. And it was an evil spirit that would manipulate, that would bait, that would entice, that would seduce people away based on time, talent, and treasure. Based on their money, based on their wealth, based on their comfort zone. He said, you have to choose. Either you're going to live in the kingdom of God or you're going to live in, in the world's, from the world's metrics. Okay? Now again, not saying that, if you, that in the kingdom of God that you, you can't have wealth and you can't, have, you, know, you can't be investing and do really well. In your, you, you, you need to read the rest of your Bible. God's not opposed to any of that. God wants us in the marketplace. God wants us in the boardrooms. God wants us on the job, in the factories, in the schools. He wants us to be doing well, to function with wisdom, to be super successful so that we can represent the fact that we're a child of the king. We're not just operating in our own power, but we're operating in God's power as well. So it's not excluding that, but it's backing up and saying, if we don't get the perspective right and we don't lock those priorities in, then you'll never be able to live that out on your own. You have to stay on God's path and let the Lord do that in you and then through you. So here's the summarization. God's idea of blessing is not excluding the material or the externals, but it's not focused on it. Instead, the blessed life is a life that's happy and fulfilled and full of confidence and full of joy, irregardless of what's happening in the external circumstances, all right? The second thing is that like any good father, God doesn't mind his children having stuff. Again, wait till you get to heaven. In fact, you don't even have to wait till then. Jesus said to a group that was listening one time, he said that it gives your heavenly father great pleasure to give you the kingdom. Some of you are already planning and you've already, you've already made a decision. We're gonna have to sacrifice, but it's gonna be totally worth it. You're gonna get Christmas gifts for the sole reason that on Christmas morning, people are gonna open something and you wanna see their eyes light up. You want to see them go, wow, wow, wow. You want to be able to post videos because they just come believe that they got the very thing. Your heavenly father feels the exact same way about us. He's not stingy. He's generous. But he is more concerned that stuff doesn't have us and that we're going to be living and we're going to be doing really well. Now, I I pulled you through all of that because that's exactly what Haggai is going to prophesy about as we read in this Old Testament book. Exactly. And you're going to find that the exact thing that Matthew chapter 6 says, don't do this, that's exactly what these people did in Haggai chapter 1. Let me show you how, how Haggai connects. Again, we've been tracking with Nehemiah pulling in Ezra from time to time because they're really all telling the same story over a long period of time. But, but you should know that prior to these two books, Israel went into captivity by the Babylonians. And so think about modern day, a whole country is captured and, and they're put under the rule of a Babylonian king and they've been living there for 70 years. But in Ezra chapter one, which is really the beginning of the story, happens in Ezra and continues in Nehemiah about 60 years into the story. In Ezra chapter one, we find out that Israel's finally freed. 
And one of the first things that happened was there was a group that got together from two of the tribes, from Judah and Benjamin, and their hearts so long to be back in Jerusalem and so long to see the city and the nation of, of Israel be what it once was that they actually made plans and they moved back to, to Jerusalem and they began to build the temple. But just like we saw in Nehemiah, as soon as they begin to build the temple, here comes all of these enemies while they're weak and while they're kind of early on in their decision making, here comes all these enemies and starts, starts opposing them. And it was really a tough go. And they went for about 25 years or so and just kind of kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. But finally they were exhausted. They were kind of beat up and they were discouraged. And so they stopped. And when they stopped working on the temple and investing all that, 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 that the Lord was directing them to in the building of his house, then instead they turned around and they were so discouraged and so tired, they said, you know what, we need to take care of us. And so they started building their own comfortable lives. And they started focusing on, you know, how, how can we, you know, live here? We've been here a while. It's time for us to put ourselves first. And they began to do that. And as they began to do it, the temple began to, the temple build stopped. And in Ezra chapter five, Ezra talks about the fact that God rose up two prophets and both of them are in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah and the prophet Haggai that we're gonna read about today. And their assignments collectively was to call the people back to kingdom priority, call the people back to work because what they were doing was a great work. And they needed to complete it because God was going to do what he promised and he was going to restore blessing to them and to the nation of Israel. And so we pick up in Haggai chapter one uh, where we find out that, uh, that they've been freed now and this is what happened over this 23 year period. Listen to this, Haggai chapter one. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, not the one that was the assistant to Moses, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying. So here's what the Lord was saying through Haggai. He says, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. But then the word of the Lord responds, and it came by Haggai the prophet a second time, saying, is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to be in ruins? I want you to remember that because we're going to come back. That's really, really important. He goes on, he says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now that's important. God's going to use that phrase two times. And what he's saying when he says, consider your ways, he said, okay, let's just stop for a minute and think about the way you're living. I want you to stop for a minute, take stock, assess kind of what, what's happening in your life, how are things going for you? And this is what, you know, towards the end of the year, it's just kind of traditional. We're thinking through how was this year and we're making these New Year's resolutions, okay? We kind of do it a little bit, you know, shallow and a little bit glibly. And, but God's saying, I want you to stop and think about it. And I want you to look and see what's happening in your life. And then God's so wonderful. He doesn't even just kind of leave it to their own processes. God says, in fact, let me help you. And listen, here's what he says. He says, you've sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you never have enough. 
You drink but are not filled with drink. Or in other words, you never feel hydrated. You never feel like your thirst is quenched. You clothe yourself but no one's warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes in it. In other words, no matter how hard you work, you never get ahead. You're always just a little short. You're always in the hole. You get a raise, you get a bonus, you, you, know, you get something paid off and you're like, all right, here we go. And somehow you're right back into the challenge again. He says, this is what life looks like for you. And then look what he says. He says, consider your ways. So he's saying, okay, now this is what I asked you before. I'm asking it again. Stop, think about what I'm pointing out. Look at what's happening in your life. Look at the trajectory. And then he goes on, he says, Here's what you should do. We're in verse eight. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, he's saying, let's go back and readjust this equation. Put me first. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and watch all of these things just come rolling to you. God will bring blessing. But he said, Come back and consider your ways. He said, put me first. He goes on and he says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. In other words, you thought by doing it your way, you were gonna get a quicker and a bigger result. You thought, well, yeah, but you know, if we keep giving this much and we keep investing time here and we just gotta consolidate, we just gotta put the focus where it needs to be, we've gotta build a better life. And he said, you thought by doing it your way, you're gonna get a bigger results, but in fact, it didn't work. And he goes on and he tells us why. He says, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. And then he asks a rhetorical question, why? Why do you think I did that? Then he goes on, says the Lord of hosts, because my house that is in ruins, I want you to remember that, while every one of you runs to his own house. Verse 10, therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew of earth and, holds its, and, and, uh, and the earth holds its fruit. Verse 11, for or because I called for a drought on the land. That's important. We'll come back to that and the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. I want you to remember this was an agrarian society. So they, they lived by livestock. They lived by crops. They, in other words, they lived off the land. And he was saying, when you decided to put your stuff first and you left the work of God in ruins, he said, here's how I responded. Anything you brought home, I, I blew it away. And then I called for a drought. It's not going to open up anymore. You're not going to receive blessing. And you just haven't realized that you're in this hamster wheel that's not going to take you where you want to go. And he said, I want you to stop and consider that. I want you to understand that. Now, the problem is when we read that from a New Testament perspective, from the lens of grace, we're like, what are you saying? Are you saying that if we don't give to the church... If we don't get involved volunteering somewhere, are you saying that God is going to sabotage our lives? Because it kind of feels like it reads that way. Like I'm working really hard here and then you decided just to kind of blow it away. And you're the one who shut off the pipeline so that it's a drought now and I can't grow the crops and I'm not getting the accounts and I'm not getting the sales and I'm not getting the deals and it seems like all the negatives are piling up. It feels like God's sabotaging me. Is that what you're saying? And let me just tell you, absolutely not. James chapter one is very, very clear. When we see evil things happening, do not accredit those to the Lord because that's not God doing that. You say, well, then what is he saying? 
Well, let me just tell you, first of all, I ask you to remember a couple of things here. Let's make a couple of connections here. In verse number nine, he said, my house lies in ruins. You go to your wonderful houses. You're making sure that you're living a comfortable lifestyle, but my house is in ruins. And the Hebrew word there actually means that my house is desolate. My house is unattended to. In fact, the, the literal word is my house is dry. It dry. There, there's no life. No, nothing's happening. It's just it's dried and, and it's 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 kind of withering away. And then he says in verse eleven, so I called for a drought. And it's a very similar, not the same, but a very similar and a connected Hebrew word. And this literally means to be, to, to be in a drought or to, to experience a desolation. And so the first thing we notice is in, in the actual writing, the language, the author, there, there's a connection, the prophecy, the word that God's speaking, he's connecting this cause and effect. And he's saying, here's what's going on. Because you ran to your house and you left my house dry and, and unattended, he said, then I dried up your pipelines. <clears throat> and you say, okay, still sounds like God sabotaged us. Yeah, only until you come to the New Testament and, and we get to really see through a New Testament lens. Galatians chapter six says this. Now listen to this. It says, do not be deceived. And whenever you read that, that's important because it, it means there's a real potential, in fact, a likelihood that you're going to be deceived here. It, it's, it's like if you know something's wrong, there's an uneven step, and you'll put a caution sign, caution, uneven step, so nobody trips. Or, or, or there, you know, there's flammable uh, tanks here, and you say, caution, no smoking, no fire in this area, because there's a likelihood someone's not going to think, and someone's going to cause you know, something really bad to happen. And so when the Bible throws up a caution sign, it's not just filling space, it's because there's a likelihood that people are not going to understand this and they're going to be deceived here. But look what it says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Well, here's the second thing you have to understand. Whatever he's about to talk about is so personal that God recognized if this is ever violated, it would smear my character. It would impugn who I am. And so I take this one personal and I'm going to watch over this to make sure that it never gets violated here because I don't want anybody to be deceived or confused about how this works. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And here's the, the, what's so important. He says, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And it's so important that he doesn't just stop there. He gives us some examples so we could begin to connect the dots. He says, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. I want you to pay attention now to the words, not eternal life, although that's included, everlasting life. Eternal life is when we go to heaven and we live forever and ever. Everlasting life is part of eternal life, but everlasting life is something that begins to flow in us right now, and it keeps on rejuvenating, keeps on refreshing, keeps on reproducing, keeps on multiplying. In other words, it's the blessing. Remember we saw in, in Haggai just a few minutes ago, it says that he caused a drought. It's interesting to me when you read Malachi chapter three that he's talking about tithing, bring, in the, bring the tithe back into the Lord. And he says, you keep saying that you trust me, but you're not trusting me in bringing in the tithe. He says, but if you'll bring in the tithe, listen to the language. He said, I will open up the windows of heaven and I will pour out such a blessing that you won't have room enough to receive it. And in a materialistic society, we think God's gonna open up the windows of heaven and our driveways are gonna be filled with big piles of money. That's not what he meant. 
He was talking to an agrarian society. He said, listen to me, if you will tithe, he said, I'll open up the windows of heaven and you'll get the rain you need when you need it in the proportion you need it so your crops will just explode. In fact, he goes on and he talks about, I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake. I won't let the bugs and the little critters chew and ruin up your crops. I won't let you know a hailstorm come through and destroy everything. I'll make sure that, it, that the heavens are open, it rains and the conditions are right for your crops to be as big and as full as they could be. This is exactly what it's saying here. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap an everlasting blessing where God will continue to move in your life even when the enemy comes, even when the world you know, shifts and something collapses, you'll have an everlasting life flow that will just pick right back up and will move you right back into the flow of things and you'll be able to keep moving forward victoriously. That's what he's promising here. He goes on in verse nine, he says, and, or some translations say, but, but here's, the, here's another caution, but let us not grow weary while doing good because in due season we will reap, listen to this, if, if, if we do not lose heart. I've said it before, I'll just keep on saying it. Lots of times it's not that we're not doing the right thing. It's that we don't do it long enough to let God do what he promised he would do. We do it for a little bit. Oh, I should be working by now. Listen, this is saying, even if you're doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and you don't see that it's producing the blessing, the promise, what God said, if you'll just hang in there and say, well, all I know is this is what God said to do. I'm gonna stay on this path. Then the Bible says at the right time that God will come and he will do what he's promised because he's not gonna let his character get smeared. You will reap what you've sown. Now, Take that back to Haggai, and here's where we're, we're going to grab these three essential truths, all right? Here's what we see in Haggai. Number one, God's passionate about his house. Passionate. The same way that God's passionate about his house in Haggai, and we saw in Ezra, and we saw all the way through Nehemiah, Jesus is passionate about his church today. Listen to what it said in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. No matter what comes against it, I will build my church. There's that everlasting life, and it'll just keep moving forward. Not talking about the building now. I'm talking about the people, the members. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, read at many, many weddings. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing by the water of the word. Are you listening? Not dried up. Not unattended to. Not doing the best they can. But Jesus gave everything that he had for his church and he still makes sure that it's washed and it's clean and it's refreshed all the time so that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should, she should be holy and without blemish. So the first thing that we can see when we put all of this together is God is passionate about his house, not the buildings. But God is passionate about the work, about, about the things that, that, he, that these represent, a place of rest, refuge, a place of restoration, a place of safety, a place of salvation and of healing. God's passionate about the building of his house. Here's number two. Number two, God's not only passionate about his house, God prioritizes his house. Remember, we just read in Haggai chapter, three, chapter one, verse three, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lie in ruins? 
Now that therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, he's talking about the fact that for 25 years, the people came there with the right heart and they jumped in and they began to work and and they were getting so much opposition and it was so challenging and it seemed to go slower and the temple wasn't quite as beautiful as they thought it was going to be. And little by little, they began to get discouraged. And when they did, fatigue and discouragement and challenges caused them to say, maybe we should focus on our own lives. And again, it's not that God minds them having The Bible says that whenever we will put God first, all of this stuff will come. In fact, in Matthew 6, in the 33, you know, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's talking about, don't worry about the house. Don't worry about, you know, your your, your lifestyle. Don't worry about, God will take care of that. God's very generous. God has no problem with that. But seek first the kingdom of God so that the sowing and reaping principle can kick in and the life, the everlasting life, the blessing can flow through your life and God can keep on doing what he promised he would do. And so this is really important. So uh, again, in Haggai, he's calling them back. He's saying, don't let it be personal. Don't let your own passions, don't let your individuality, your preferences cloud the issue. You come back and do what God wants you to do to build the kingdom of God, he said, and watch me respond. Listen to what he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. He said, coming to him as a living stone, rejected in these by men, but chosen by God and precious. He's talking to Jesus. You also, as living stones, are being built up by a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and here's the question, why? Why is God doing that? He says to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Why did God call us? Why did God say you're a family? Why did God say you're part of a a body, an organism? Why did God say you're living stones, uh, creating a kind of a living house, a, a spiritual house where people can come and find the presence of the Lord and find refreshing? I created all that so that we can have part in that and we can be here sacrificially offering ourselves and saying, God, we're trusting you. We're going to sow to the things of the kingdom. We're going to sow to the spirit. And our confidence is that you, your character won't be smeared. If we will sow, then we're going to reap exactly what you promised. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For I say to you through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, nobody is excluded, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Consider your ways, as God has dealt to each one of you a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body, one collection in Christ, and individually we're members or we're committed, we're part of one another. It's counterculture for sure, but it's a kingdom way to think, and the Bible says as we do that, God's character is put to the test, and the life, the everlasting life blessing will begin to flow. Here's the last one. The last one is because God is so passionate about his house, and he prioritizes his house. Here's number three. God blesses those who passionately prioritize his house as well. We're not talking about God cursing your life if you don't. And we recognize there's ebbs and flows. There's seasons where we can be more generous with our time, talent, and treasure, and other seasons where we are focused, and we have to be doing, doing what the Lord's called us to do in our family or on our jobs. And we're not talking about, about those kinds of seasonal adjustments. We're talking about a mindset that says on one hand, no, I'm part of the kingdom and I'm going to heaven. And on the other hand, has no thought or no time 
to invest time, talent, and treasure for the kingdom of God. And the Bible says, see, that that becomes an issue with the Lord. And he loves you so much that he won't contribute to you continuing to be distracted. In fact, he'll just turn off some of the pipelines. Not sabotaging, but saying, I'm the one flowing this to you, but if you sow to the the flesh, then that you no longer qualified. Let, Let me give you this verse in Acts chapter 10, and we'll bring it to a close. Acts chapter 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and he said, this is after the resurrection, after Jesus has already gone to heaven, Peter's now functioning not as a disciple, but as an apostle. And he's learning some things hands-on in ministry that he'd never seen before. And on this particular occasion, he's standing among Gentiles, which Peter never thought he would do. Never thought he would do. And yet here he is standing among Gentiles and Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He said, you know what just dawned on me? You know what I'm learning for the first time after all these years of actually walking with Jesus and now being in his ministry? He said, all of a sudden, man, my eyes just open and I realize God does not show any partiality. But listen to this. But in every nation, by the way, that's the Greek word ethnos. He's talking about ethnicity. He's talking about your background. He's not talking about geography. He's talking about no matter where you came from, no matter what race you're from, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what background, no matter what education, no matter what intellect, no matter what financial, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. He said, in every single nation, whoever fears the Lord and works righteousness, so those two, you're putting God's first, put God's principle first. Lord, I'm going to do what you said to do, and I'm not just going to be passionate about it. I'm going to take that step and I'm actually going to begin to work the kingdom principles of righteousness, I want you to notice it says he's accepted by him. And, And we don't have time, but I wish we could just talk for 10 minutes on the word accepted because it's such a beautiful word. It's such a deep word. It literally gives a picture of extreme and generous hospitality. It's talking about when you've been planning for a very special guest to arrive and you pulled out all the stop for weeks now. You've been preparing the house. You've been fixing up projects that you hadn't fixed up before. You've been gathering their favorite snacks and making sure the guest bedroom is just, you know, just the way they're going to be comfortable and, and looking through all. And finally the doorbell rings and you go to the door and you open it and you say, oh, I can't believe you're here. And you reach out and you take them in your arms and you pull them in tight. And then you walk them into the house and you show them, here's where you're going to be staying. Oh, let me take your luggage for you. And no, let me get that. You come, do you want anything to eat or drink? And I have a special meal prepared. You treat them like royalty. Pull out all the stops. That's what that word accepted means. And it says, when you fear the Lord, when you put him first and you say, okay, and we're going to do it your way. We're going to work righteousness. The Bible says that God pulls out all the stops. And God will welcome you back into the blessed life. And God will, will set that table, that banqueting table in front of you and saying, listen, I'm going to do everything I promised I would do. Because again, my character is not going to be smeared. I said, if you sow to the flesh, you're not going to reap blessing because my character won't be smeared. But if you sow to the spirit... You're going to reap like you never thought you could because everlasting life and the blessings going to begin to flow to you. This is a promise of the Lord. Listen, God's not a respecter of person. I don't care how long it's been. I don't care if you feel like, yeah, but we've just been here for our whole life. I don't care. 
God can change it. God can move it forward. But we have to be saying, Lord, how do we get our priorities lined up so that everlasting life can begin to flow? As you do that, God's word is true and God's promises will absolutely true. Listen, last thing I'm going to say, none of this is for condemnation at all. We're all in our seasons before the for, in, of life. All of us are working through stuff. And so none of this is measuring you. If, if you're already serving somewhere or if you're tithing and you're giving, then don't let the enemy say, well, you're not doing it enough. And you should be doing a little. Don't, don't do that. Don't, just don't do that. Shut that down and listen to the Holy Spirit. If, if you're already engaged, then let this be an encouragement to you. Let this be a strength to you. Let this be a sharpener so the enemy can't talk you out of anything, but you can keep on going steady. If you were once involved and you were once, you know, focused with your time, talent, treasure, and you kind of drifted off, let this be something that sharpens you. Let this be something that says, okay, Holy Spirit, help me to consider my ways. I want to make sure my heart's right. And as you do that, the Holy Spirit, who's so loving and who's so gentle, he'll just bring you right back in line. And all of a sudden the windows of heaven will begin to open back up again. And if you're here this morning and this rubs you the wrong way, if you despise this, oh, I hate this kind of stuff. Can you believe he's doing this? And listen to me, let, let me just say to you, that's not my intent. I love you. I'm trying to pastor you well. We're not trying to get anything from you. And if you want to come here for the rest of your natural life and you don't want to lift a finger, then we will serve you and we will love you because that's what the kingdom's all about. But like Paul told to the church at Corinthians, he said, I'm not trying to get anything from you. I'm trying to get something to you. Because if you'll understand this and you'll begin to move, listen, you cannot outgive God. Time, talent, and treasure, everything's multiplied back to you. And all of a sudden, life begins to blossom just the way you should, not just in the moment, but for generations to come. God will create a flow of the blessed life for you. That's what our prayer is for you. And that's what God's doing here at the church and in uh, in, in uh, among us. Would you stand to your feet and let me pray for you this morning and then we're going to sing another worship song and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for putting every safeguard and every checkpoint in place so we're not left to our own understanding but you keep pulling us back to following you every step of the way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guard the word of God that's been uh, given today. Parse it out so that we walk away with exactly what you wanted us to hear. Don't let the enemy exaggerate or, or swing to the side or bring condemnation or twisted thinking to any of us, but parameter all that and let the word of God sink in so we could hear from you clearly. Lord, we thank you that as Christ followers that we're already blessed and we're asking you to help us to walk into that blessing. Lastly, Lord, I pray for anybody here who's not committed their life to Jesus or who needs to commit it fresh and new. Holy Spirit, would you give them the courage? and the clarity and the confidence to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.